1: Welcome to the 343rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Rita Robbins. Rita is the founder and president of Affiliated Advisors, a super OSJ with Royal Alliance that provides support to 90 financial advisors and collectively oversees $3.5 billion in assets under advisement. What's unique about Rita, though, is how as the founder of one of the first women-owned SuperOSJs nearly 30 years ago, she has witnessed firsthand the evolution of the SuperOSJ model from providing local oversight of brokers selling proprietary products decades ago into back office platforms that provide an increasingly open architecture product shelf coupled with compliance, technology, marketing, business management, and other support to independent financial advisors. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Rita experienced the evolution of the broker-dealer platform throughout her decades-long career, where technology and compliance that was once the core of what Super OSJ's provided is now increasingly supplanted by more in-depth services to support their advisors, how Rita has grown and scaled her platform by focusing on three levers of recruiting advisors, organic growth from the advisors and platform itself, and inorganic growth from advisors buying and selling practices and how the growth of Rita's firm accelerated in the pandemic because of the middle and back office support it provided with its advisors through technology, including and especially the ability to work remotely as so many banks and warehouses were ill-prepared for the digital transition. We also talked about how, despite not being a financial advisor herself and ever working with clients directly, Rita became intimately familiar with the needs of the advisor community after spending more than 10 years on the road as a wholesaler, which gave her the confidence to launch an OSJ. How Rita was inspired to start her own OSJ after helping an insurance company launch a broker-dealer platform, realizing that she wanted to have more control over her own success, which could only be done if she went out on her own. And how Rita expanded the leadership team of her platform to include two new partners that each have their own specializations, so the new partners expand rather than merely dividing up the capabilities of the firm. And be starting to listen to the end. Where Rita shares how she dealt with the early career pressures of having to show up and even dress the same way that men did to prove that she was trustworthy. How Rita was able to overcome the trauma of discovering a business partner and long-term friend had been embezzling money from the firm, which was only discovered when a team member had their health insurance lapse because the business partner wasn't paying the premiums. And how Rita still struggles a little with the balance between getting caught up on things that can't really be controlled and giving time for business challenges and business cycles to work themselves through to the next stage of growth. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Rita Robbins. Welcome, Rita Robbins, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me really looking forward to talking with you
1: i I really appreciate you joining us and and just I'm looking forward to a conversation today around so I think at a high level just all the different ways that advisory firms get sort build their support systems to operate as advisory businesses you know if you if you go back to sort of the roots of the industry it was like we all worked for like regional and national wirehouses that you know just were you were an employee there. They had all the tools, all the technology, all the systems, all the infrastructure, all the support. You you showed up, you got your clients, you sold your stuff, you ate what you killed, uh, and 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 that was the deal. Like you showed up in their ecosystem and you did your thing. And then over the past, I, don't know, I guess, like thirty years or so, we've had this evolution towards. More independent models of various types to start with the independent broker dealer, then it kind of expanded to the independent RIA, and this idea of like no 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 you don't have to you don't have to have all that all that overhead that they've got with their you know beautiful New York offices and uh, down on Wall Street you know you can go hang your own shingle and do your own thing and and we've kind of painted this picture of the arc of the growth of independence over the past thirty years except to me it's always fascinating that when you really drill down how advisory firms work in practice like well i'm an independent but but i but i'm part of a platform or a network and like well they actually you know set me up with a lot of my technology and and my compliance and and some practice management consulting and and it's actually like a whole other community of advisors who are like me and it's like cool so like really not actually all alone I, like i mean might be independent and in owning your firm but like you're not really like out on the western frontier, or like planning your planning <laughs> your flag in the wilderness to build this on your own. And and I don't mean to say that in a negative way or, or to belittle anyone. To me, like what's interesting about that is I feel like we have sort of glossed over in the growth of the independent movement over the past twenty or thirty years that independents are not quite that in, independent. All right? Like maybe in, "independence" is the wrong word. Like they're not that alone and isolated where you li- are building everything on your own from scratch. Like you you can if you really want to inflict that upon yourself, but but most advisors don't. And so I've watched this grow with the, you know, the RA side of the world over the past 10, 20 years with all the like the tamps and the networks and the platform businesses. But to me, the irony is they're basically just replicating what independent broker dealers have been doing for like 30 years with the growth of the growth of the super OSJ model. And so I I know you've lived that side of the business, and, and so I think I'm just excited to talk about this whole dynamic of the support systems that exist for advisors that, to me, at the end of the day are remarkably similar regardless of what channel you're in, that there's things we do as advisors, and then there's things that platforms tend to be pretty good at solving for.
2: You know, exactly, Michael. It, it is interesting. You know, when you when we look back and, you know, I can certainly look back because affiliated advisors uh, will be 30 years old next year. Um, and I think about, you know, where this started from and, you know, how I started. And it was very much these, you know, as you say, the wire houses and, wow, the independent broker dealers and banks having, you know. Uh, wealth advisors and insurance companies getting into the game. You know, it, it's so interesting how much things have changed. And yet, Michael, in some really real ways, as you've pointed out, they've really remarkably stayed the same because you can go out there on your own and try to build everything and try to replicate the services and the support and, you know, uh, technology Uh But there's so much out there, so readily available and really priced in such a way that you can be successful at being independent. And um, and yet, you know, this this can be a lonely business. And I know that there are so many advisors who really love the idea of the freedom that comes with being independent. And yet they still need to be part of and still want to be part of a community. And I think that's the interesting part of this.
1: It, it reminds me of some friends and family I've had over the years that that like have that have built their own house, right? Like I, I want it exactly the way that I want it. Like I'm 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 not going to take something that someone else created. Like I have to go create my own thing. Like it sounds really cool until you're on like the seventh hour of looking at doorknobs <laughs> and right, cabinet um, handles <laughs> because you have to. Because like when you really build from scratch, every possible imaginable choice has to be decided by you. And there are some folks that that do that and love that and thrive in that. And like, it's their dream to get to pick every possible detail, exactly their specifications, like more power to them. But most of us are actually not quite so happy when you get to those moments and start going like, I, I... I wish maybe a little bit of this was a little bit more out of the box.
2: Well, A little easier, and and as you say, the amount of time that has to be devoted to these type of decisions. Uh, I mean, you know, advisors who really do want to, you know, build from scratch as opposed to taking advantage of you know all these resources and platforms and availability of support that's out there. Uh, I think they find that they're spending a lot more time building a business than actually working with clients. And that is always, uh, to me, the sort of Achilles tendon here. It's like, you know, spending time with your clients and building your business is very different than working on building the actual infrastructure of your
1: your business. So I think to, to kick us off, Help us understand a little bit more, just the affiliated advisors business, your your platform, and what you what you do.
2: Oh, sure. Well, you know it's it's very interesting. As I said, I started this business um, in 1994. Uh, I'd already been in the business uh, for for about. Uh, 15 years. I started off uh, with a firm called EF Hutton and I was an assistant to some brokers and I just instantly fell in love with the business. Uh, And from there, I went to work for actually one of the first independent broker dealers. Uh, It was a firm called Nathan Lewis and it eventually got Purchased by uh, MetLife in the early two thousands, and I was there for a few years, and it was really an, a huge shift. I mean, I had been in warehouses and you know, now it was like, wow, these people so, aren't sitting in branch offices and you know, metropolitan areas.
1: I was going to say, so what? What was the difference at the time? Because I mean, we we talk about. IBDs versus wirehouses today we may come back to that later with you know, breakaway movement and that whole dynamic but like take us back 30 years ago like what was the difference between a wirehouse and independent broker dealer then
2: Well, it was, it was night and day. I mean, there was nothing. There's no part of it that resembled each other. I mean, I was used to sitting in a a branch office in a very upscale suburban area, you know, Garden City, New York, you know, in a, uh, uh, you know, a branch office for a major wire house that looked sort of like the interior of a bank, right? You know, like, you know, wood paneling and, and, you know, Advisors and back then it was, you know, uh, telephones and nobody even had computers. And, you know, I was in part of the back office at the time and, you know, orders used to come in via pneumatic tubes and I would type them out and send them down to the floor traders. I mean, it sounds really insane but that was the way it was and it was a very strict hierarchy you know there was a branch manager and a regional director and uh, you know everything was was very very standardized everything was very uniform and I remember like if if somebody was you know, going to buy a mutual fund. We sort of had to scramble and look for an order ticket. I mean, literally a piece of paper, you know, like like, they came in in triplicates. And in the mornings, uh, you know, the confirms would be taken off of a a printer after some, you know, a night shift had punched key cards, you know, uh, you know. And so it, it, uh, it, it really seems like it was definitely another era or two behind us, almost in a prehistoric way. And so when I met this uh, a man who became a, a huge mentor and supporter for me, Jay Lewis, and he said, you know, I'm going to start this uh, independent broker dealer. And, you know, this way, uh, financial advisors can have their choice of they want to sell and who they want to sell it to. And, you know, we're going to start off with very simplistic products that will appeal to probably advisors who have grown up in the uh, insurance, you know, arena. So we'll, we'll work on unit you know, trust and variable annuities and mutual funds. And I remember being a little bit dazed like, what are those things? Like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> they so, like, not stocks, not, or stocks, bonds? not like. Right. What's I mean, left.
2: what's left, no options. I mean, I started in an era, Michael, where like people would bring in coupons from municipal bonds and they would go in these little envelopes with glassine fronts. I, I was speaking to my children about this a while ago and they like looked at me like, Mom, people literally took a pair of scissors to a bond and cut off these little, you know, 1 inch by 2 inch Yeah, like
1: the the reason <laughs> the reason you call the interest rate on a bond a coupon is because you literally pulled out scissors and clipped the interest like a coupon off the bond, signed the back like an endorsement and cashed it at the bank like a check.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So, and if the um,
1: bond was good, it cleared. <laughs> like it's, okay. it's, it's fascinating to me just how how far the the industry has come. But but also the like the the other thing to me that you indirectly highlight in in that distinction that you know, wirehouses of the day sold stocks and bonds and options, like things traded on the exchange. And bro- independent broker dealers mostly sold mutual funds and variable annuities and and some some unit trusts, uh, uh at the time. And just you know, the the reason why we originally called them independent broker dealers, like it wasn't actually because you were an independent contractor and like the whole 1099 versus employee thing that evolved. Like it was called an independent broker dealer because it was independent of an investment banking division. In New York City, it meant like you didn't, you didn't underwrite and issue stocks and trade on the floor, like actually it, have your own physical traders on the floor exactly. that you like sent pneumatic tubes to, like <laughs> right, is, like that. There that was, was the not- context of what it meant to be independent. Was like you didn't do that whole Wall Street stocks and bonds thing with all the Wall Street people that you need to do that. You were independent of all that. Because you were doing these things called mutual funds that had just cropped up,
2: you were not even uh, members of the of the stock exchange. I mean, oh, think about a that broker right?
1: dealer that's not a member, a of, a member the of the stock exchange. exchange, like right. it's like so a cr- second class citizen.
2: That was crazy, and you know it was very interesting because uh, you know when I uh, went to work uh, at this firm, uh, we really. had a really hard time, a really challenging time, convincing advisors that this was like a legitimate business model. (laughs) Like this was a real thing. This could actually work and it did work. And I remember like we would go on the road and talk to advisors. And we started off in smaller metropolitan areas, like, you know, in Albany and a Syracuse, for instance, in New York, uh, rather than, you know, heading downtown to Wall Street. And it was so interesting to see that sort of light bulb moment when, advisors started to recognize that, you know, maybe the constraints that they'd been operating under these firms and the restrictions that were placed upon them in terms of what they sold and how they sold it and who they sold it to. And of course, you know, as time went on, um, I mean, it was a, an issue then as it is now, but I think it's beca- it became more uh, of a recognition that there were actually some downsides to these big firms that were members of the stock exchange that had been doing business the same way for so long that it was not, uh, they were indistinguishable from each other other than the reputational risk. And it took a while, I think, for advisors to recognize that there was going to be more freedom, more flexibility, and ultimately a different solution set for their clients.
1: So, so I know those distinctions today, and we'll we'll I think talk more about them when we can move move through history, as it were, and, and get to get to where a lot of this stands today. But I am curious to hear a little bit more of just what it was like then, as you're trying to draw the distinction of like why would I join Lewis and Co. Because right. like. Merrill Lynch is a much better known firm and like they trade, you know, they're a member of the exchange. They trade on the floor. Like they have good traders. Like why, why would I join you? (laughs) Like what do you do again?
2: Well, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, that, that wirehouse advisor, you know, was not our target market. That, that shift was going to be way too dramatic. Okay. It was going to be just such a different business model so alien and foreign that it was never really going to work. So we uh, targeted uh, insurance advisors who were licensed and working at insurance companies. Um, so these were typically, and you know, uh, advisors who mm. had uh, gotten into the business uh, really to sell insurance. And as the insurance companies started to expand their product line, right, variable annuities—they all got
1: into variable annuities variable in the eighties and nineties. So right? they all started registering their reps as. uh well dual registrants at the time which meant state insurance plus a fin, plus a finra series 6 didn't even need a 7 because they weren't stock brokerage firms they were doing variable annuities and mutual funds so they would get finra licensed and were working in their insurance broker dealer subsidiary to do the variable annuities while they were doing the rest of their business in traditional life like the those were the folks that you were going after
2: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, in some ways, it was really, uh, you know, kind of ingenious on uh, to start in on that trajectory, because here were, you know, people who had really started, you know, not being advisors and started because of the insurance company's expansion into these profitable, you know, sort of, quote unquote wealth management products like variable annuities and variable universal life. And then everybody came to the realization, that it didn't take very long, that, you know, servicing all of, you know, a family's needs that were not just about, you know, protection or risk management, but, but rather that realization of how important, you know, a holistic approach to taking care of clients was going to be to the economic health of these insurance companies. Um, you know, and you know, we can look back and see, you know, uh, get, you know, kind of that whole group think of how they all started acquiring asset management firms and getting yep. into the mutual fund business and, uh, you know, the actually the, the globalization of that whole process, you know, which we can see as European firms, uh, you know, came, have come in and out of the U.S. wealth management market as well. So it was very, uh, it was really very interesting. And we really... I think one of the things that really differentiated Our approach, as you know, being one of, if not the first independent broker dealer, was the orientation towards education, to really understanding products and really understanding how they could help uh, or what the downside even was in a way that, you know, for instance, the wirehouses might not have emphasized as much. It was a very different business model, a very, very different approach to managing client assets and in some ways uh you know i think a lot of these advisors went on to be pioneers in the financial planning arena
1: well it, it is worth reflecting i mean if you if you look at the like the roots of financial planning back to the like the 1970s and 1980s and and where it got going originally and like the the early platforms that like really championed a more comprehensive approach in a in a in a product driven world like it was life insurance companies it was IDS that ultimately became American Express and over right. the years
2: Ex- and it absolutely. and it was Cigna
1: which then became SageMark and went and went the Lincoln right. route. like it was it was insurance companies <laughs> that were doing this more holistic approach like you can do more than just sell them the life insurance if you understand their broader needs and objectives you can help them across multiple domains which then fit well as they were all as you said like adding broker dealer subsidiaries and and becoming more you know more broad in what they did IDS went from IDS life to IDS financial services mm-hmm. uh, like it 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 started there so I guess in that context to me it, it also helps to click and make sense of so that's why, you know, it was appealing to be recruiting out of insurance companies because a lot of the more holistic approach was starting to be born out of insurance companies, but they were first and foremost product manufacturers. So, you know, they, they wanted to do more comprehensive planning that led to selling their products. So when you came as an independent broker dealer, it's like, no, 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 you can sell any product. Like we have an open shelf. Right. Come, right. come work with us. Like just do all that planning centric stuff you're doing. But Will give you more choices and more flexibility.
2: Yes, much more flexibility, much more choices, and and uh, you know it was also interesting that uh, in addition to what you've laid out here, I always found that the insurance companies were a lot more interested in educating their advisors about retirement planning, for instance obviously, again, leading back to that you know, product manufacturing side. But it was very interesting to me to see that, you know, in some ways, uh, the insurance companies really led this, you know, uh, dramatic evolution into financial planning and retirement planning. And I don't think many people stop and really think about, uh, you know, that uh, going back, how that trajectory uh, from probably the companies that we least expected of really were the big catalysts
1: yeah it it fascinating how these things play out when you get get 10 20 30 years out so Absolutely. so you're building an early independent broker dealer recruiting heavily out of insurance channels and the insurance broker dealers of the era and and I mean was that really the message was uh just we'll, we'll give you a wider range of choices you'll have a You'll have a broader shelf with us than than when you've got your company. Like, was that actually the talking selling point at the time, well, or were there other things that you you highlighted?
2: Well, there were other things as well. You know, first of all, uh, you know, it was a time when a lot of uh, there were some economic changes also going on in the sort of career agent model, you know, which had been a you know very. Uh, profitable system of general agents and then agents underneath them, like these, you know, almost like these fiefdoms, if if you will. So, as those models were changing and it was becoming less, uh, you know, meaningful from a financial perspective for advisors, a lot of them were leaving the career system at the time. Um, almost, you know, it, it Paralleling what we're seeing today in terms of advisors right. at wirehouses and banks thinking, hmm, you know, am I really I I'm do am I really getting the portion of this revenue that I'm generating that's commensurate with the work I'm doing? Mm-hmm. You know, am I paying for overhead that has nothing to do with me? So it it, it was actually the start then of uh, you know advisors or agents at the time starting to take a look and say, you know, what is in my client's best interest and what's in my best interest. So I think it was a combination of factors. And I think not only did we speak to them about, you know, this flexibility and the, the freedom, uh, but also the benefits of, of, you know, kind of having your own business. You know, where do, where do you want to be about? What market is most authentically yours? Like, where do you feel most comfortable? And we also took away, there was, you know, the, the pressure of, you know, just being focused on selling, you know, a very limited number of products. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I can, but I would really hate to uh, really dive too deeply into thinking what it's like to spend, you know, six or eight hours on a phone cold calling to sell life insurance to people. I mean, it sounds pretty horrific to me.
1: So, so how does this play out? Like you, you go work with, uh, with Jay Lewis to like start getting this new independent broker dealer thing going
2: yes uh so what happened was you know i had when i met jay i was in the back office and he said you know i think you'd be you'd be good at marketing uh why don't you help us market these financial products and I thought, well, that that's great. I mean, I don't really know what a mutual fund is and I don't think we've ever sold a unit trust, but, you know. And so we really, I, I used to joke around, it was like we were on a tour bus and in some ways, literally, we would pack up a van on Monday morning and, you know, drive to all these, uh, you know, communities where we had meetings set up. And I would explain mutual funds and unit trust and variable annuities. And a few years into this, uh, a mutual fund company you know, recognize that, uh, you know, they had only been selling to uh, wirehouses and regional firms. But, you know, all of a sudden, like, here's are these small, you know, independent broker dealers that are actually, you know, producing a, a nice amount of sales for them. So I was hired by Lord Abbott in 1983 to help them develop everything that, where they had never been before. So insurance company broker dealers and these independent broker dealers and, and some of the banks were just starting their programs at the time. And I really loved it. I was uh, one of a handful of women wholesalers in the entire country at the time. And I was the first woman wholesaler at, at, uh, for Lord Abbott, obviously. And so for 10 years, I crisscrossed the country every week, speaking to advisors and Independent broker dealers, insurance company broker dealers, and bank broker dealers. And I loved it. I loved working with advisors.
1: Very cool. and so this is wholesaling Lord Abbott funds in right. the in the 1980s when we're still very much in the heyday of the stock market. I mean, like where this is this is Wall Street Greed is good. Here oh
2: yes yes this is Gordon Gecko and uh, I always when I talk about marketing with my advisors I I tell them you know I trust like the female version of the way men dress. I had a suit. I wore a white shirt. Uh, You know, this was the era where we'd wear, uh, you know, sneakers on the subway or, or, you know, flying and then have to put heels on. Uh, You know, so we were, you know, I was very much, and I think the other uh, women who were wholesalers at the time, I think we were very much uh, felt like we had to emulate exactly what was going on in the rest of Wall Street. And what really changed, Michael, what really changed for me was after this 10-year career where I literally was living in advisor's offices, um, I, I, I had a baby. And my daughter was born in uh, March of 1993. Uh, and I, <laughs> my entire life shifted. Uh, my priorities changed it was really surprising to me it was actually it was shocking to me i So you lo-
1: were not expecting things to shift and change
2: I i wasn't i mean isn't that crazy i wasn't you're i was
1: like i'm going to have the baby and I'm, then we'll I'm just get back, back on, on the road,
2: the road. I'll, I'll get right back on the road uh i really thought that i did and Obviously, I'd never had a child before, so I had no experience to draw upon, uh, but I I loved what I did. I was passionate about it. It was exciting. I really, really uh, couldn't imagine that there was going to be something or anything that would totally shift my perspective on how I wanted to spend my time and and what I loved.
1: So... So what do you do? So you're you're still in Lord Abbott wholesaling. Yeah. And now uh, realizing you maybe don't actually want to be in Lord Abbott wholesaling.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, I, I will tell you that my uh my first trip, uh, my you know, obviously you're a wholesaler you're traveling. My first trip when I came back from maternity leave, uh, my husband uh, took a, a week off of work and he and the baby and I, you know <laughs> went on the road together. And I realized, you know, this, this really isn't going to work for any of us. Uh, I couldn't ask my husband to constantly travel on the road with me. And obviously, you know, wholesaling with an infant back in a hotel room uh, wasn't going to work for anyone. And, you know, it was very interesting because I, I would say that I was well known. I was, um, I wouldn't say high profile, but certainly people knew who I was. I had been very successful. And I, I just really wasn't getting any job offers for anything other than wholesaling. Hmm.
0: Uh,
2: so I took a few months off to try to figure out what I wanted to do. And I realized I I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew that I loved working with advisors. I knew that I just spent 10 years Um and I, I, I understood what made advisors successful. I could tell right away when I was in someone's office uh, because you have to develop that sense when you're a wholesaler. You could tell right away, or I could tell right away, you know what why was you know, this advisor successful versus that advisor not being as successful? And so uh, just through kind of a happenstance and a fluke, uh, a company that I did a lot of work with, a mutual benefit, uh, went out of business at about the same time that I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, and so the uh, the a lot of people, uh, the head of their retirement planning, the head of their their broker dealer, went to work for an insurance company in Minneapolis called Reliastore Life, and they called me up and said, you know, help us get this broker dealer off the ground, and so I started uh, my OSJ. Uh, without the real, you know, there were no OSJs. And so it wasn't as if I had this, wow, I'm going to start an OSJ, but rather I, you know, went to work for this company, helping them start up a broker dealer for a very uh, successful insurance company, but I didn't really want to work for them. I somehow knew that I, I wanted to perhaps control my success, uh, because I had just spent 10 years wholesaling. So I was so used to being the one who determined, in a sense, my job security and what I was paid that I, I didn't want to go backwards because to me, and I, I heard this on a, a recent podcast uh, with uh, with uh, Danica Wydell, who said that safety... Uh, you know, it was depending on herself, and when I heard that, I thought that was exactly how I felt twenty nine years ago. I wanted to just count on myself.
1: So, which to me is just an interesting framing. So, you you're you've been largely on your own in the wholesaling realm. Just a lot of on on the road, make your results happen. You you can get paid well if you make your results happen, but you you kind of li- live and die by your sword. Uh so you're, you're living that world. You get an opportunity for a nice employee gig at an absolutely massive, secure, safe Sable insurance company and are going like, Yeah. doesn't no, actually feel that so. safe. Like, I think the safe <laughs> thing would be hanging my own shingle again.
2: Exactly. Uh. And I I know that a lot of people were confused by my choice, and but I can just tell you, it was something that I felt very deeply. I just, I knew I could count on myself. And that was the only thing that I really knew. Plus, I felt this additional pressure um, and responsibility. I was a mother now, and that uh, really felt enormous to me, Uh, and in a good way, and in a positive way. And
1: uh, so See, but I, I feel like most people are like, you know, I'm a parent now, job, stable salary, employee benefits, like
2: security. Th-
1: yes, like these are the things that at least I find like the, the average person seems to gravitate towards. So, you know, not like, hey, I'm a parent now and need to provide for my child. I know entrepreneurship. That sounds like a great path. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, it didn't feel that way for me. I thought about things like, uh, you know, the politics. um, I had seen, you know, not a lot, but, uh, you know, enough of uh, people that I thought really weren't smart uh, who didn't you know, weren't very successful getting ahead. And it felt to me like corporate America was constantly going through restructurings and then there's like mergers and acquisitions. And so it seemed to me, and, you know, my perhaps uh, skewed view of the world back then, uh, although I still embrace it now, it didn't feel very secure. Uh, I I knew that I could always... uh, I would always do whatever it took to be successful. That was never the doubt. I just didn't want to have my fate and my future and my financial well-being outside of my control and in someone else's hands.
1: Because for better or worse, the one thing that you get from self-employment is no one can up and fire you one day.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of other downsides to this that we're both, you know, very familiar with. And, you know, there's a a huge amount of, you know, sacrifices and, you know, late nights and, uh, you know... um, You know, self doubts and second guessing, and and you know there are absolutely some downsides to it. But I always felt like one of the things that enabled me to to move forward consistently was a huge amount of denial. So I was uh, just absolutely able to not think about the risks and the downside. Uh, I just didn't think about
1: it. So so what exactly then were you going off to do when you like ultimately made the Decision that you're you're going down this road.
2: So uh, the uh, the deal that I, I had with uh, this uh, broker dealer from the insurance company was that I would get a small, very small override on all the business that the advisors that I recruited to this broker dealer did, um, and. I thought, wow! I've just spent ten years living in advisors' offices. I knew, I knew a lot of advisors, and that's exactly how the OSJ started. Was I went and uh, you know met with all these advisors, of course the ones that I liked the best and the ones that were the most successful, and recruited them to this uh, broker dealer out of uh, this insurance company in the Midwest, and so uh, sort of off and running, and uh, you know. Because I had spent a decade in their offices, I really did know what they were looking for and I knew what they wanted and I knew what they needed. And obviously, these things have changed greatly over the last three decades. But it's very interesting that I was never a financial advisor. I never had clients. I just always felt like my passion and my calling was to work with advisors.
1: Interesting. And so the wholesaling route, 10 years of calling on advisors continuously was what built the foundation for you to say, I'm I got a pretty darn good understanding of what this looks like and how their businesses work.
2: It was a great, a great education. It really was.
1: So help me understand just the you know, the, the the business model and the platform as you went to start doing this 30 years ago.
2: Well, I actually stayed with uh that broker dealer um for uh well 10 years. Uh and uh they were eventually acquired by ING. Um and uh that started to um it just didn't feel quite as authentic anymore. Um again, it was I think it was part of the 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 product manufacturing side, starting to creep into uh, the options that advisors had in terms of what they were offering their clients. So uh, in 2004, um, I, I left ING uh, with, you know, a whole bunch of our advisors and we moved to Royal Alliance at Advisor Group. Uh, so the, the things that, that advisors need as we move forward, and you know, through the evolution of, of this OSJ, they started to look for the things that a broker dealer just could not provide, no matter how well funded they were, no matter how large they were. I mean, you're going to always need the technology base that's given to you by the you know or provided through the broker dealer, and obviously there are capital requirements and you know a compliance uh, ectoskeleton. But advisors, I think then and now especially, are looking for so much more than just those kind of platform features that are available and and pretty much table stakes across the board. So advisors, you know, in our experience, are looking for much more specialized practice management and, you know, marketing and a compliance interface so that they can do their business easily and quickly without a lot of burdens. You know, where are they going for strategic planning uh, and client onboarding? You know, another area that we find is really important for advisors now, and it's going to become more so because of the demographics, is, you know, where are advisors going to find, uh, you know, really inorganic succession planning and continuity planning, and how do they get this in a highly individualized, specialized way? And so part of what our firm uh, provides for them is, you know, this structure, the coaching, the community, and in some ways, allowing them to grow their businesses by freeing them up because of the things that our firm, in conjunction with our broker-dealer, provide for them.
1: So... Help us understand what this looks like from the the business model end. So you're 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 living in a grid world, and I mean, just advisors like we really only know the grid from the how how much how much you're going to give me, <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, right. you know, a higher percentages <laughs> win. Uh with I, I finally just not a lot of context for either like what the what the OSJ has to do for to maintain the either the the portion that they get or just the the platform in the first place. So, help us understand a little bit more just how this how this breaks down in terms of you know, like how you actually got paid as an OSJ and and what the costs were that you had to incur to actually do this for advisors.
2: That's such a good question. So, you know, I can only speak, obviously, specifically to ROSJ. because sure. there's there are now as many models to that as there are for advisors, right? Uh, so, uh, it it is a, uh, a a diverse approach, and the way that we look at it is we have, you know, we have three avenues of growth. We have three growth levers at our OSJ. You know, one is obviously recruiting and, you know, we are very focused on that. And, you know, almost a third of the new advisors that we bring on board are referrals from existing advisors. So that's very interesting because it used to be that, you know, we thought of success as having a very high level of referrals. But you know, actually, I think firms that have the highest growth rate don't uh, have other avenues to bring in new business other than just referrals. You know, the second way that that we, uh, you know, are successful as an OSJ is through organic growth. It's increasing the revenue per advisor, uh, which is you know obviously pretty obvious. But the third way, and the way that we've really seen an, an increase, is an in organic growth. And to give you an example, the last four years, we've probably done close to 18 transactions where we've helped advisors sell or advisors buy practices, both within our organization, about half have been with within our own group of advisors and about half we've gone outside to find the right match. So uh, recruiting organic and integrative growth are, are the three big levers that we have and how we've structured our firm. And again, each OSJ will look at this differently Is you know, we're coming at it from the perspective of how do we allow solo practitioners and emerging teams to be able to spend most amount of time that they can building their business and meeting with clients. So we have taken over an increasingly larger portion of, you know, that middle and back office in conjunction with the resources of advisor group. So we have, for instance, our own director of compliance who has been uh, in the business for more than 30 years. We have our own operations specialist, Uh, you know, so we have a, uh, a team, uh, client service specialist. We have somebody who just is doing, um, you know, sort of general administrative and events for us. And then I have two partners uh, who are pretty new to working with me, although I, I've known one of them for uh, decades. And so each of us have a different area of specialization. So uh, my partner, Tom Ritberger, is, uh, you know, has successfully grown Several large RIAs. He is a former chief compliance officer, actually at ING, uh, at their broker dealer. Although he, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, made some major career shifts, and so he focuses on mergers and acquisitions, at inorganic growth, succession, and continuity planning. And Trisha Qualley, who uh, is the youngest member of our ownership team. Uh, she focuses on practice management, obviously technology, uh, transitions, onboarding advisors, and and you know doing so much uh, for our advisors in terms of their business strategy.
1: So, so from a business end, where does revenue come from for you guys? Like, is it all the grid? Like, is your business you you live you live and die by the grid as? as the advisors take the other end of it, or we, does that happen can. in more ways?
2: No, uh, we, we sort of live and die by that grid. So to say, you know, the way you would phrase it. So we are paid, you know, a small override on all the business that's done, whether it's transactional or investment advisory, uh, you know, by advisor group. And it's very interesting that we probably, uh, I mean, we have about three and a half billion dollars AUA and the, majority of that is on an is done on an investment advisory basis something that you know I thought was very important and started to push you know many years ago so I don't know whether we're ahead of that curve or just about where it is but I would say that uh, probably seventy percent of our revenues are generated on an investment advisory basis and thirty percent are transactional
1: which simply becomes a function of uh... The underlying revenue of the reps is 70% advisory and 30% transactional. So that, that goes up to advisor group. They have their grid payout structure uh, and of the portion that's retained at the advisor group level, uh, uh, some of that, a percentage of that comes to you as the super OSJ that's doing that level of recruiting, management, advisor support, oversight, like just all all the things that go in the OSJ bucket.
2: You know exactly, exactly, and it's it's interesting that when broker dealers take a look at uh, these OSJ models versus broker dealers that don't have an OSJ model, um, even with an advisor group, the retention and the growth of advisors in an OSJ model is greater than those that are going, you know, directly uh, to the firm itself, and you know we're. I'd like to think that we're doing better than average, but, you know, we have doubled, you know, our revenue in uh, the last five years.
0: So we, we,
2: we've uh, doubled our, our AUA, we've, we've doubled our revenue, and, you know, we were actually flat last year, which is kind of interesting, uh, but I will tell you that there was a really dramatic growth and the pandemic, I think, has had a huge impact uh, on the independent space uh, or at least the independent broker dealer space um in ways that I would well, I never anticipated uh you know being locked up during a pandemic. I don't know how many of us did, but I was really surprised to see the acceleration of the appeal of being independent uh, really, i think was uh, something that I would never have predicted Michael, I would never have predicted that so many advisors at wirehouses and banks were so ill prepared to be able to work remotely. And that, you know, light bulb moment of thinking, wow, I'm just as, you know, close, maybe closer in some ways with my client, you know, my laptop here in my dining room, as I was in that, you know, big office that I was commuting to for, you know, an hour each way every day. So I think that really accelerated, uh, in that sector of the market, a movement towards working independently
1: interesting. So so from your end, the there has been acceleration in breakaways from warehouses and banks just since the pandemic as as folks realize, like, oh, maybe I actually can work with my client just fine, even if I'm not in the lovely branch location with the lovely. It's like the, the lovely tables, the mahogany wood and, and, <laughs> right. and all that. It's like, I mean, the things we get, you know, we get comfortable with and attached to and sometimes sort of a connect to part of our brand and the brand perception until you're forced not to go to the office for two years and you still serve your clients and you find out like nobody, nobody left and you still grew.
2: Exactly. It's like, I'm not wearing a suit and tie anymore and my clients still that I'm the, you know, their trusted advisor and they still listen to what I say. You know, That authority was not really dictated by their surroundings or what they were wearing. And so actually, it wasn't even after the pandemic, Michael. It was during the pandemic that we had our best recruiting ever from, from those sources. So what's the,
1: like, what's the driver that makes them actually say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to drop and make this switch. I mean, I get them noticing like, okay, maybe I don't need the, the wirehouse the way that I thought I did because I'm not wearing the suit and tie. I'm working from home. Like clients are staying, but, uh, but you know, change is still stressful and like not exactly convenient. So usually there's still like, you have to be going to something to make it worth, worth the switch. So what were they Drawn to to actually say, I'm going to go through the trouble of this transition. Like, is it simply the the economics are so much better once you don't don't have to pay for that overhead that apparently you're not going to use anymore? Was it was it other factors? Like, what was what did you actually see as driving the uptick in why they were actually willing to leave and make the transition?
2: You know, I think it was several drivers. One, and there's no getting around this, was technology. I mean. Nobody's living in a bubble anymore. And, you know, you're online, you're reading, you're seeing this technology that's out there that you can, you can, you know, Rent really, right? You can rent fabulous technology, and they're looking at the technology they have. They're looking at how challenging it was to actually get information or have access to information about their clients' accounts during the pandemic. I mean, you know, the banks and warehouses weren't used to having advisors in remote locations like their home offices or their dining rooms. So technology was definitely part of it. I think another thing was, uh, you know, they that intimacy and that closeness that they were able to get Zooming with their clients instead of like that coming into the office or being on the phone. So again, technology driven. I think also part of it was this, this realization that, wow, I really don't probably need, I'm not utilizing, but I'm paying for a whole bunch of overhead that is having no impact on my business on my business growth or on my clients, you know, they don't care that, that, you know, my dog is barking in the background, for instance, or that my, you know, I'm I'm homeschooling my child here during this pandemic in a way. In fact, maybe it made it closer. And I think also there was also a realization uh, that maybe was, uh, had been brought home in a stronger way, that there were some freedoms that they were missing and some flexibility that was definitely off the table that they really had wanted to embrace. So it also, I think ultimately people are getting really a lot smarter about being authentically who they are with their clients. You know, what is their practice about? What is the markets that they want to serve? Who are the people that they do their best work for? And I think as they began to to recognize, like, maybe I can't be all that I want to be and service the kind of clients that I want to service. And then every year, you know, it gets harder and harder as these hurdles increase because the cost of running these huge global firms increases. I think that just the bottom line is that economically and then at the end of their career, I mean, you can't miss the multiples and the, you know, frenzied, you know, acquisition activity that's going on in our business. And really, these advisors were completely on the sidelines, and that was never going to be. Uh, you know, they they were building a business for someone else, and I think that recognition of how much those businesses were actually worth also had an impact on decisions to go independent.
1: So let me ask along those lines, though. The I feel like a lot of the industry discussion these days around business values and and the multiples is is very specifically focused on the RIA channel. And some of that's just cuz the that's where the media coverage happens to be cuz it's it's a little more straightforward to get some of the numbers cuz you can look up an RIA individually. It's hard to see one the size of one rep's business when they're on a platform with hundreds of others. Uh but there is I feel like this perception that the The valuations get unlocked. At least the the dynamic I hear, it's not valuations get unlocked in the independent channel. It's the valuations get unlocked in the independent RIA channel. And this idea that they're still not fully realizable in the in the broker dealer world. But you're, to me, like the the what you're describing here is like no no no. Most of the most of it is just. When you transition to anything in the independent platform space, that that value opportunity comes to bear.
2: We really believe that it does. And, you know, I know because, you know, we're part of this industry and uh, I know that, you know, the talk is all about and the panacea for many seems to be these the independent RIA as if this is like the, you know, the ultimate, you uh, ideal situation for everyone. And, you know, we don't have an independent RIA. And that's been a very, very deliberate business decision not to. And, uh, and there are several factors here. You know, one, you know, all businesses are ultimately valued on their cash flow, right? Their revenue, yep. their profitability. And so it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a uh, a car dealership or a technology company or a financial advisor's practice. I mean, there are some basic business fundamentals that drive valuations. And that's pretty much true across the board, at least in my experience of, of, of working on Wall Street. So uh, the fundamentals of what driving valuation is always going to be cash flow, profitability, earnings, right? Um, and yep. obviously, there are going to be some softer uh Non qualitative factors as well. How how,
1: transferability of the business,
2: duration, growth rates, you know, a a whole bunch of, um, you know, brand name recognition. There's a whole bunch of things that are going to drive valuations. But, you know, when we did the analysis and both of my partners were very, very successful in the independent RA space. So it was not as if we were lacking the, the expertise for this at all. And it's certainly not that anybody's lacking in the ability to go out and get, you know, fabulous technology that can really, really drive profitability and, and enable uh, these kind of uh Businesses to just flourish and thrive. But when we really did a, a deep dive on the cost benefit analysis, you know, honestly just, we just realized that it was a different kind of business than what we really wanted to run. And that's really a surprising thing to us because we're so growth oriented. And we actually did an exercise. So the three of us, Tom, Tricia, and myself uh, are actually uh, taking a coaching program with Dan Sullivan. This is my second time around. And we did this exercise where we're looking at like, what is your business going to look like at 10 X? It's what it currently is. And when we did this modeling, this financial modeling, and, you know, staffing modeling and all the rest that went along with it, you know what? We realized that wasn't the business we wanted to be in. We didn't want to be staffing up an RIA. We wanted to be delivering services and value and community and coaching uh, to our advisors. And when we take a look at the scale, you know, we're part of advisor group and, you know, they've a huge, huge, obviously, uh, scalability of having 12, 13,000 advisors. So when we take a look at what we paid for technology, what the platform costs are, we have two clearing firms. So obviously, trading costs are, you know, totally insignificant. You know, we just felt that for ourselves and our advisors, what we would be giving up in terms of our time, uh, what we would be, uh, the kind of business we'd be managing in in terms of the size of the team that we would need to be effective and efficient and deliver value just wasn't the answer for us.
1: So can you, can you do a, a little bit more of that, that math for me or, or just laying out like, what are the what are the hires? What are the positions? Because right? there are a lot of advisory firms out there, I find, that think about like, well, yeah, we could, we could just make our platform bigger and bring other advisors on, which is a version in the RA channel of what, what you live in the, in the Super OSJ channel as well. So right. as you looked at this, like as someone that's very experienced in building out these platforms for advisors, like I'm really curious how you looked at it in vetting an RIA platform offering and saying, Nope, I don't like the economics. So like, what do you have to hire? What do you have to do that, that made that not, not compelling?
2: Well, you know, I think, I think part of this for us goes back to our values, uh, you know, our passion and, and how did we want to spend our time? And obviously, you know, we're all, uh, very driven to be successful and we work very hard and it's very important to us. But I think at some point everybody or one should stop and say, you know, what kind of business do I want? not just looking at the growth metrics. Yes, we want to be successful. And yes, we want to grow. And yes, we want to be profitable. But when we started to really, really do a deep dive into, you know, how much staff are we going to need? And I don't just mean, you know, the things that you can outsource pretty efficiently and, uh, you know, like compliance. But, you know, that's something, you know, obviously you can outsource and, you know, have it in-house. That That's not going to be a huge cost factor. But where it starts for us to become less appealing and maybe not really the direction we wanted to go in was the the size of the staff that we were going to need to ensure that not only was the compliance done well but things like you know oh my gosh you know just making sure that you know, fees are being deducted correctly and performance is great. Uh, You know, the reporting on performance is accurate, even though there's lots of technology out there. And there's just so many functionalities that go in along with having an RIA that I think people don't stop and think about. I think for most people the thought is like I'm going to keep 100% of the revenue I generate and that's going to be so much better than what I'm currently getting now, you know, on these, you know, grids. But the reality is it doesn't work that way unless you have a lot of scale and you really want to be in the business of managing for For us, anyway, a larger team. And that just wasn't where we wanted to go. And all too often, we're finding that people who really don't have a very large uh, amount of assets under management are finding themselves, you know, in this, what used to be this or they believed was this panacea, this perfect solution. I'm going to have my own independent RIA. And all of a sudden they're worried about things that they never had to think about before. And one right. example, for instance, might be Reg BI, which, you know, thinking that they're being freed from these FINRA regulations, you know, now all of a sudden we have Reg BI. And who really has that thought when they get into the RIA business that now their technology needs are not just going to be about the Things like uh, client reporting and uh, performance reporting and right. CRMs and all the rest. Now all of a sudden, it's like, how am I going to get all these forms out to my clients?
1: It's it's an interesting phenomenon to me that. like I kind of think of this from two ends. One, just with any sort of business, although I I see the lot in the independent RA world right now, there is a point where you large enough that like just you can get to the economies of scale to hire all the staff infrastructure you need to do all the different centralized management and oversighty stuff that you need like it's it's large it's at, at least billions and potentially like 10 plus billion dollars before you like you really start getting to some of those economies of scale there is this certain leanness when you're a pure solo and for better or worse like you're oversight obligation is you and it's usually pretty easy for you to oversee you cuz you deal with that in the mirror every day uh <laughs> but then there's this ginormous space in the middle where it's more than you and less than scale which for a lot of advisors that start growing i find like you you can spend 10 20 30 years in your career in that like messy middle and not not grow up the other side cuz the the number's big and it keeps getting bigger as the as the demands rise. And it just, it all revolves around this phenomenon that when you're multi advisor and building a firm, you, you, it's not enough to just provide the like the tools and the tech and the platform. Like you actually have an obligation to oversee. Like if the fee deductions aren't working correctly, that's your liability for the firm. Oh. If the reports aren't going out correctly, that's your liability of the firm. If, if an advisor goes out there and kind of goes rogue and does some not great things for clients that's not just on the advisor and that's not even just on your firm also because they're affiliated with your firm it's a whole separate layer of failure to supervise uh like compliance exposure and liability which i know like the the broker dealer world has always lived cuz finra for better or worse is pretty pretty visible and out there with their failure to supervise mm. <laughs> penalties and consequences you don't see a lot of that in the RA world, at least not yet. Like the 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 SEC hasn't been as aggressive in of in in enforcement on that end. But I feel like you're just starting to see it crop up now that they're asking more questions of, hey, if you're an RA with a whole bunch of branch locations, particularly if their branch is basically largely independent advisors who just run out of their own houses, like how exactly are you overseeing them when they have all those quote unquote branch locations? And like it's it's not a word that usually gets used in the RA world, but that's still how the regulators view it and and just I am fascinated like anybody that comes from the BD world, particularly the 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 broker dealer compliance or OSJ world like has lived supervision and failure to supervise risks and I just find it often gets glossed over in the in the RA world when they start going multi-advisor.
2: You know, you are so spot on with this. I mean, it's, it's not just that there's an enormous amount of maybe unrecognized liability, but when those liabilities actually, you know, occur, you know, when there is a failure to supervise or when you go through an SEC audit and something is discovered that you didn't even know about, boy, Michael, that messy middle, as you call it, I mean, that's when it becomes shocking for people. And we've had instances where we've had people leave independent RIAs, take their FINRA licensing and and come back into an environment where they can focus on growing their business and, Mm -hmm. and providing solutions for their clients because, you know, it will only take one SEC audit. You know, when you're spending months, and it can be months, it's definitely weeks, you know, over your conference table, you know, especially when you're a solo practitioner or a small team, this is incredibly disruptive. And I don't even know how you would have the tools, the resources or the expertise to really be able to completely stay on top of, you know, it's one thing when you're a solo practitioner, although proving best execution even as a solo practitioner probably isn't that easy. But when, as you're saying, there are multiple advisors that you're working with, I just think the complexity is is much more than people recognize. And I believe that the SEC is going to catch up. I mean, they will be doing, you know, uh, more audits. I think their staff is going to increase. When you look at their priorities. Uh, you know, and, and and you know, rules that are under consideration. I, I think we're going to start to see. Uh, I, I won't say exactly. Maybe in the next five years, a leveling of the playing field. But I think that there is going to be greater attention paid to, you know, this RIA space, it's independent RIAs. And as that, you know, with anything, that bell-shaped curve, those advisors that are stuck in the middle, uh, it is really, really challenging to move to that uh, end that's really profitable and really efficient. And you know, as I said, you know, we have billions of dollars under management and we just felt like it wasn't going to be as profitable, as efficient, or as fulfilling for us as uh, as everybody else seemed to believe it is.
1: So is there still a, you know, some like corporate RIA under advisor group option? Like just do advise, can advisors who are, working with you have some pathway to RIA or is the whole idea like, no, if you want that, just that's a different thing were for the folks that are staying 100% FINRA licensed?
2: Well, you know, uh, about, and I think I said this, about 70% of our revenue comes from investment advisory. So, you know, we do have advisors that obviously all of our advisors are working as investment advisory reps of a corporate RIA and, you know, enjoy the scale
1: and and, and pricing and of this That's like at the advisor group level.
2: Exactly, exactly. You know, they are exploring, um, and, you know, there are some options of uh, RIA only at Advisor Group. And I think that you're going to see more and more broker dealers. I mean, we see this at, at Commonwealth, or, you know, some news lately about who Advisor Group and Sotero have hired. So I think there's this recognition that even on the, the independent broker dealer side, much like on the Wirehouse side, you know, one size has never fit all. And I think that's kind of the beauty of our business isn't it? That we're evolving to understand that there are going to be different ways that people want to manage their business and and we can accommodate a a variety of of successful business models.
1: So so how does a firm like affiliated position itself out there and just what is still ultimately, I I don't have to tell you, like just a crowded marketplace of (laughs) <laughs> BD platforms, RIA platforms, super OSJs, under various BD platforms doing their own things at their own level. Uh, just how do you explain the difference of your platform versus everything else that's out there that advisors might be choosing from?
2: You know, in some ways, that challenge for us is no different than it is for the what's the number now, Michael? 80,000 financial advisors in the United States. That number remotely Yeah, or
1: why depending on whose numbers you use, because you get the whole like, do you just count the BDS, the RAs, the insurance agents, all the overlap? But yeah, so you're, you're most numbers I see, you're you you're probably somewhere in the hundred to two hundred thousand range. Just by the time you get all the different overlapping buckets.
2: Okay, so I totally underestimated this. Uh, but uh, you know, how do you differentiate your practice? And the value that your firm delivers and the solutions that they deliver from everyone else. Because basically, we all have that same product set, right? I mean, yeah. we have the exact same product and, set. And I
1: mean, it's, it's a distinction because you go back to the the early years and like it, it wasn't that everybody had the same product set. Like w- when insurance company A had their products, insurance company B had their products, insurance company C had their products. And either they differentiated on the strength of their Products like literally what they could manufacture, or the early days of IBDs where the differentiator was, Well, you're not restricted to that platform, you have an open shelf, but that doesn't work when everybody gives on open shelf because now we've all got the same open shelf, like that doesn't distinguish (laughs) anymore,
2: right? It's it's table stakes, right? It's just it is, it's accepted as you know. It's part of what is. Obviously, we all have to have that. So, I think a lot of this comes down to um, who we are as people, you know, what our values are, what our visions are. And I think everybody's practice, just like everyone's practice, reflects who they are, right? I mean, your businesses totally reflect who you are. And that's yep. what's made them so successful because you're very clear very, very clear about what you value, what you're passionate about, what you stand for, and, and the people that you want to work with. And I think the same thing is true. You know, we are, you know, love working with solo practitioners. It ha- happens to be a part of the market that's generally overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, the way uh, so many advisors say, oh, I I work with you know, high net worth individuals. Well, I don't know how many advisors actually do that versus how many of them say that that's what they want to do. So I think it's more,
1: I mean, we do a lot of benchmarking data on this. It's a lot more aspirational than in practice just for most of us. Like I, you know, I work with high net worth clients means I have a few and I would really like more because they are remunerative and I enjoy working with them. They're good challenges and all that. But if you then, Show down some of the numbers of like, well, how many do you have? It's like, well, you know, I'm
0: uh, I've got five sorry. big
1: I've got five <laughs> big ones, and then hundred and twenty seven in the middle market. That's just really where the bread and butter of most advisors are like the the average advisor client is like a four to six hundred thousand dollar client. That's where most advisors are by numbers.
2: So, you know, this, the the same thing is true for OSJ models. You know, we're very, very clear about where our market is. You know, we like working with solo practitioners. We love working with emerging teams. Obviously, we want to work with people who reflect our own values and our own vision. Although, you know, one thing that is really interesting is that we do want to accommodate what each advisor's vision of success is for them. And, you know, that's really Part of you know what we're all about, which is kind of interesting, is that you know we really want to help our advisors build the practices of their dreams. I don't think a lot of people come at it from that perspective. What do you want? You know, what does the future look like for you, and how can we help you get there? And I think what's very interesting is that we also have very perhaps different idea of what success is. I mean, we have 90 mm-hmm. advisors. Uh, we're small. We don't want to have 900. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It's just not, you know, what we want. And perhaps it goes back to that idea about how do we want to spend our time? Is it, you know, running a business or working very hands-on, very closely with our advisors? So I think we also have a few things that distinguish um, us as 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 people, uh, leaders, and business owners, and one is that we're very, very devoted to uh, lifelong learning. We really believe in coaching, uh, not only for ourselves, because obviously that's very important, but for our advisors. So I think the things that we value and the services and the experience and the sense of community that we bring to our advisors really helps to differentiate us in the marketplace. We we don't want to be all things to all people and we're definitely not. So I think the clearer people are about what they enjoy, the clearer people are about, you know, how they're going to define success. And, you know, for me personally, it's changed so much over the years. I'd rather do a really great job for uh, uh, some really great advisors than, than have the biggest OSJ out there.
1: So you had said earlier that one of the things you gleaned in your wholesaling days is this perspective on like which advisors are actually going to be successful what what drives the success so i guess i'm curious now as you look at that both then and today like what are the things that you find are actually the the success drivers of you know, growth and favorable outcomes for advisors
2: mm, that's such an interesting question well one thing i really believe is that This is, you know, in some ways, this profession is so challenging. It can be so difficult. It can be so discouraging that unless it feels like a true passion or calling, uh, you're not going to be successful. It just takes just way too much energy, time, too much of your heart and your soul. Uh, If you don't love it, you're never going to be successful at it. I think the other thing that's very, very clear to me is that the more that an advisor can truly articulate, you know, what their goals are, you know, what they want their practice to look like, what's important to them, what do they stand for, what does their firm represent, what are they trying to deliver to whom and why, without those, those being, you know, without advisors being really, really clear about that, Michael, I don't know that they can be successful
1: so the the clarity that an advisor has to say this is what i'm building this is what i want to be this is going to do who i'm going to do and do it for and then speaking about it passionately like that's that's the one that sets your success meter off like this this one's going to make it
2: this one's going to make it. Yes, this one's going to make it. And that's not to say that these things won't shift and change and morph, because obviously they will. But I think that this is not a business that you can, uh, it's okay. I've never seen a successful advisor who's like, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, this is fine. No, they are driven. They feel uh, a compulsion to help people. They want to make the world a better place. It's very, very obvious to me. I think the other thing is that when I meet an advisor who really wants to learn, you know, who's really open to uh, learning more, not only about, um, how to provide uh, information and communicate with clients who wants to learn all about what's going on, on, on cutting edge in terms of, um, you know, planning and um, taxation and changes that are coming and really doing a a much much more authentic, thorough, deep dive into a client's entire and their family's needs and what they want and and how to structure this and liaison with other professionals, those are the advisors that are going to be successful. You know, it's the advisor who stays in that same way of doing business. that They've always done it, no matter how antiquated it might be, no matter what else is going on in the world about them. You know, they typically are on a road to extinction without even understanding it.
1: So what surprised you the most on your own journey of building successful advisor platform in this super OSJ world?
2: You know, it's so funny that you asked me that because I, I, um, I have a 25 year old son and I was speaking to him last night and I had, um, Uh, I had a situation that didn't work out yesterday. I was really, really disappointed. And he said to me, mom, it's kind of amazing to me that you still care so much. (laughs) Like at this point in life, I I turned 66 uh, last month. And he said, at this point, I would have thought it was like, it didn't matter. I was like, oh my gosh, it, it matters. And it matters so much. So I think one of the things that surprises me uh, is that I still really feel like there's so much that I have to learn and there's so much more that I can do. And I'm still so enthusiastic about what I do every day. And I think that, uh, you know, in a way, one of the real surprises to me came three years ago. Well, actually, probably about five years ago when I started to think about my own succession planning and, you know, just have been you know really blessed and fortunate to find two partners who have taught me so much, so much. And so instead of looking at this as, you know, this inevitable end to this career that I've loved and this business that I've built... Uh, I feel more inspired than ever, and I feel like I have more energy and more enthusiasm than I would ever have expected.
1: And so, is that part of what's queuing up for you? Is your new new partners are are part of a succession plan pathway for you?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, and we're three generations, which uh, just happened to work out that way. But um, I'm really fascinated by how much I've learned from people who are younger than me. So, you know, there's certainly, um, you know, my age, I sometimes feel like I'm in the wisdom game, but the truth of the matter is that it's, you know, the people who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s that really have the most to teach me uh, going forward than I'll ever learn on my own.
1: So what was the low point for you on this journey? Mm.
2: Well, I I thought about that, and, and there were actually two Um the kind of vie for, you know, the lowest point. Uh, the first, the very, very low point came from, or a very low point came for me when I had a business partner, um, that I realized was embezzling and it was even worse than I had suspected. And it turned out that he'd been, uh, accused of some other criminal activity having to do with, uh, finances and, uh, in a very large scale way. So that was absolutely devastating to me that somebody who had been, you know, a dear friend uh, for, you know, more than a decade. And finally we are oh. businesses and uh, you know, I'll never forget the, the moment that I realized that there was something really off with the finances of the firm. So that was. Uh, How do you
1: for that? Like just where, where does that crop up? Cause I feel like that's, for almost anyone that's had a business partner that you build with for a while, like the the trust gets so implicit after a while, it's like I'm not even sure how I would realize it at some point.
2: Uh, well, this was really uh very uh it, it was it was kind of a fluke. Uh, we had an employee who had to go to the emergency room and her health insurance was declined. And I got a call, like literally around midnight, and she was so upset. And I said, "Well, first of all, I, I'm not sure what's going on. It's midnight, but just you know, get taken care of whatever medical uh, you know services and attention you need, and you know, we'll pay for it." And then the next day, I I called up the insurance carrier myself instead of going through our uh, administrative officer, and they told me that the premiums hadn't been paid on the health insurance policy, and that was. Uh, you know that that I mean I can still remember what it felt like. You know to recognize that this was the tip of the iceberg.
1: So you go start tracking that down. Like, <laughs> did someone forget to cut a check, and then you find right, out? like, right. You think, no,
2: oh yeah, yeah, uh, got a- overlooked. No, it's not that at all. There's a uh, uh, you know huge sums of money missing, and then uh, yeah. Uh, So that was, that was pretty devastating. And I really wasn't sure how I was going to move forward. I was so paralyzed. I was so, uh, that sense of betrayal was just so horrific that I, um, I I really, uh, (laughs) and you know, I will tell you that I think what kept me going was that I felt this obligation to this team that we had. Um, Ultimately, I mean, in very short order, our, you know, we separated out, uh, I separated my business back out from his and ultimately, um, you know, uh, that other companies no longer in business. And it became a very public uh, problem, not just with me, but, um, uh, you know, with some uh, municipal pensions. And it was really, it was really, oh, really.
1: So like there, were, really, there oh, was a lot of missing oh. money from a lot of big things
2: yeah big missing money from big things um and oh. this yeah so that was it was horribly horribly devastating uh in, and
1: this, in retrospect the, like there's um, stuff you would have done differently or is this yeah. one of those like you you just can't see it coming until it happens
2: well in retrospect and i would just say this as much as you trust and uh you know, admire as friendly as you are, as unimaginable as it could possibly be, uh, I would say trust, but verify. Mm. So, uh, you know, have a system where, uh, you know, there's, there's an openness or a way of uh, mm. checking uh, finances of your company.
1: Yeah. I, I had talked to a, a founder once, a serial entrepreneur type that said basically like n- no matter the size and stage of his his businesses from from pretty small up to up to quite large where you just you have a lot of resources to make choices he said like i always 100% of the time outsource all bookkeeping to a CPA firm <sighs> and and he was like just cuz it's just oh, yeah. another layer of checks and balances that happens, and you know you you may or may not pay them a tiny bit uh, uh, more than what it costs internally. Although usually it's not a huge differential. They just said, like, look, they they don't have any skin in the game. Their whole purpose <laughs> for existing is just to account for things. They're really <laughs> good at it, and just you 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 remove a certain layer of internal kind of controls and reviews risks when there's just an outside CPA who's just going to make sure the math adds up every month to close the books. That's what they do. Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. I I never particularly thought of it that way, just, you know, to me, even from the business sense, like, well, all right, you know, we can do this externally because it's a little cheaper, but then at some point, maybe it's big enough that we bring the position in, in and we can, you know, pair it with some other responsibilities and write a job description. And, he was just like, no, 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 yeah, like yeah, well, this well, is this is just a checks and balances thing for your business. Like, just have someone outside do it. And, and yeah. it was it was a version of this. I don't know if he'd actually been hit by a fraudulent partner, but it, like it was a version of this that it's a lot harder for someone to cook the books when there's an outside CPA who's just going to see the math doesn't add up pretty quickly.
2: And that, that's brilliant. Um, and you're right. I mean, typically people think, oh, I'll pair that with a payroll functionality and there you go. It's, you yeah, know, we've yeah. got the better part of a, a Yeah, a books, books here, payroll and uh,
1: benefits is a right, pretty right, straightforward right. hire.
2: Pretty pretty straightforward. I'll tell you the other thing, and I really, this was also so devastating. So, you know, during the financial crisis, uh, we, you know, at the time, Advisor Group was owned by AIG. And I literally remember that day, it was September 16th, when the federal government was going to decide whether they were going to bail out AIG. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And I mean, just think about this. My advisors are already dealing with, you know, the really probably the most disastrous financial Mm -hmm. uh, events that they're ever going to experience, right? And they're looking at clients just getting their accounts are just decimated i mean literally i had advisors say to me rita should i be stashing cash under the bed
1: yeah i I mean i (laughs) i remember the conversations of people who were literally like getting money out of their bank accounts just so that they could be like cash in a safe to be liquid In case banking stopped working on Monday. Like that was a legitimate conversation happening at the time.
2: Oh, totally legitimate. And, you know, here I am in New York City and you're watching, you know, like employees crying and, you know, boxes in their arms as they're streaming out of Lehman Brothers, right? And Bear Stearns, just like all of it. Remember all of it. It was really horrific. So I remember it was September 16th because it was my son's birthday. And I remember saying, I can't come home for a couple of hours. <laughs> because I just couldn't, I, I, you know, had to be there. And I made this deal with my advisors, like, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to find an option B, like, because we might need an option B. Mm -hmm. You're going to take care of your clients. So that was one way that, you know, at least I was able to keep busy. I spent a lot of time talking with other broker dealers and where would we go and how, how would this happen? And, um, and it wasn't, you know, uh, you know, what I cared about was like, I need to take care of my advisors while my advisors take care of their clients. And so that sort of commonality of purpose, like, I'm going to take care of them the way I want them to take care of their clients. Uh, it kept me moving forward because I didn't have the time to, uh, like, let myself melt, melt down. You know, that denial really kicked in and right. I was just focused on it. And, I, you know, I remember the sense of relief um you know, that AIG was going to get bailed out. But what I hadn't known was coming was the enormous backlash and the anger against AIG, um, mm. you know, that we were, you know, partially spared from. But I remember saying to my son and my daughter, like, don't use those AIG backpacks anymore. <laughs> like really yeah. people were that angry, right? <laughs> yeah. So that was um, – Wow, that was a time I look back and uh, I I guess we all do and think like that is another time when groupthink really uh, not just impacted our industry, but, you know, an entire, uh, everyone's lives to a greater or lesser extent, right? Everyone thinking that there was just one way real estate prices could go, right? And an easy, cheap credit and... Uh, so yeah, I think that uh, has also permanently changed the way I look at things, and I think I've become more conservative and probably not as um, adventurous or probably risk adverse in some ways than I was before that whole financial crisis. I think I've become a lot more conservative uh, in the way my own personal finances work. You know what our company's uh, you know financial picture looks like, and maybe that's not a bad thing.
1: So what else, like, what else do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 10 plus years ago is your 30 plus years ago is your first getting started and <laughs> looking at this?
2: Oh, boy. So I think I would, uh, I, I wish I could go back and tell myself uh, not to worry quite so much about everything that, you know, that things, you know kind of work out, you know, uh, because I, during both of those situations that I talked about being very low, uh, the lowest times of my career, I wasn't really sure that they were going to, and they don't always for everyone, but I think that I spent a lot of time worried about things that, uh, you know, sort of like don't sweat the small stuff, um, and so much of it is. So I wish that I had been a little more relaxed about things and not quite as, you uh, as worried, and I think that maybe goes hand in hand with with having a little more confidence that that in myself and you know my ability to focus and execute and to not underestimate um, you know that hard work and uh, and you know really does pay off. There's not a lot of people who've really devoted themselves to something that hasn't had to work out, is there? I mean. Obviously, someone has to lose an election and and businesses do go bankrupt. Yeah. But I, I think if you're kind of thoughtful um, and you're focused, I I think I, I wish I'd been a little easier on myself.
1: So what are the like small stuff things you're trying to defret de- now? I can make uh, up that word.
2: Uh, um, yeah. So I would not get as caught up in, in – everything that did not work out, uh, you know, that I, I I wouldn't go back and do deep dives about what went wrong. I mean, I do like to take things apart and learn because I think, you know, sometimes I learn is more for my failures than I do my successes. Uh, but I think I wouldn't take it quite as personally. I think sometimes there are just business cycles that are the way they are and there's nothing that we can do about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing that I would continue to do, um, but, you know, maybe in a, in a broader, bigger way is, um, you know, more formally be able to support younger advisors and people that I believe really have a place in our profession and that haven't been able to find entry points. So I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but I know that that's like the next chapter for me is, you know, how do we get the kind of people that typically we haven't served very well in our profession and that really need to be part of this profession going forward. So that's something that I'm concerned about and I'm worried about, and I'd really like to be more involved with in a, in a larger way.
1: So in that in that vein, like what what advice would you give to younger, newer advisors looking to come into the industry today and and try to get off on a good foot?
2: Hmm. Okay. So first it would be, you know, believe in yourself, believe in yourself and, and be who you are instead of as, you know, I used to feel I had to be this female version of the man that I worked with. Right. So You know, be who you are, be genuinely who you are because, you know, that is your, one of your biggest assets and learn as much as you can from everyone all the time. And I think the other thing that I was really not as uh, good at as I should have been is ask for help. Ask for help. There's a lot of people out there that really want to support you. There are organizations that really want to help you get to that next level and whether that's through education or mentoring you know go for additional training learn everything that you can and uh, be confident that it's going to work out because it will it absolutely will
1: so as we wrap up this is a a podcast about success and just one of the themes that comes up is the the word success means means very different things to different people and so you've had this wonderful 30 plus year career of of Building the Super O S J World and affiliated is now up to, I think it's ninety advisors and many billions Mm -hmm. of dollars. And so the the business has certainly gone very well. How do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: Well, I'll tell you, uh, I define success by the success that my advisors have. I, you know, been really fortunate to work with advisors for many years, and one of the places that is most rewarding for me is like we have several practices where the adult children of the advisors are now involved. And that is incredibly Mm. rewarding. I mean, just, it's just absolutely incredibly rewarding. Um, The other way that I define success, and this might be very simplistic, but um, I had this goal that I wanted, uh, you know, my husband and I wanted our children to be able to get through college debt free. And my son graduated uh, a few years ago. And that was a huge huge milestone really? for me personally. I never went to college and I just felt that this was something that was absolutely essential and that I really wanted for my children. so for me uh, it might be s- simplistic and uh, but for me the success of knowing that my children got great educations and they were able to do without incurring debt. So I think that the satisfaction of watching other people succeed is really how I define my own success.
1: Very cool. Very cool. I love it. Thank you so much, Rita, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Well, Michael, thank you so much for having me on. And um, I really want to thank you for all the things that you've taught me and so many others in this industry.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor?